Sometimes in scripture, you don't know exactly what to take out of what you're reading. Am I supposed to do this? Is this a warning of something not to do? Is this a person to emulate? Is this a person to avoid? Um, the principles that worked in this person's life, will they apply to me? Is this a one-to-one? -one? Do I just do whatever I read? The classic example for this is Gideon, right? Where he keeps testing the Lord. Are you sure? You're sure? You're sure? And then we read other places in the Bible like, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But then you see somewhere else where God says, test me and see that I am good. Like, Which is it, God? Is it this? Is it not? Should I follow Gideon's example? But in the story of Gideon, as our little intro here before we get to Rahab, it can be tricky to know, like, should I do what he did? So that's called hermeneutics. For those of you who want the 50 cent word for it, it means how you interpret what you're reading. When you read something in the Bible, not everything in here is meant to be read the same way. This is not a single book. Even though we call it the book, the good book, it's not a book, it's a library. It's a collection. There's 66 different books, different letters, different things. And so you would read poetry different than you'd read a command from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. That's different than your love is like springtime, if, if David writes that in a psalm, for example. So what do we take from Rahab? She's commended in Hebrews for being a woman of faith, and yet she was a prostitute. So, like, how do we reconcile her lifestyle and her choices? How do we know what parts of her are things that we should imitate? Was she just a once and only person? Are we going to read her and be like, that's really unrelatable. I don't live in a walled city that's about to fall down after Israel walks around seven times. I'm not personally into prostitution. I'm not running a brothel like she was. I can't relate to that part. There are no spies coming into our land. And I want to be careful that we don't miss what is actually happening in the story. Because what's happening in the story through her particular situation is exactly what happens in our lives. This is one of the greatest stories of grace at work that we have in scripture. Someone who comes from kind of the worst beginnings among the worst people in a place that God wants to take over and do something completely new, she finds favor. She steps out in faith. She receives grace totally undeserved. And that has to be our story. It has to be our story to say, I don't deserve God's love. And every time we fall, it has to be our reminder, God, please let your mercies come down anew every morning. And so I started reading Rahab through those eyes and thinking, what if Rahab stood up at the beginning of the service and did what Ashley did today? This is what the gospel means to me. And so that's how I decided I'd like to read the story of Rahab and think about it after. As if she was standing here telling her own life story. Saying the gospel has meant everything to me. It saved me and it saved my family. I was lost but now I'm found. It's like a teen challenge story. But it really it has to be all of our stories. How afraid she was of dying because she knew her city was doomed to destruction. How afraid are we of being lost? Are we so confident in God's grace that we don't really care anymore? We're not afraid of anything. She had this, such a fear of God that she was willing to lie to the authorities. She knew where the, the hierarchy of authority belonged and God went for her. She was afraid of this God that was about to destroy everything. Do we have that same fear? We should. We fear God and we 
rationally appreciate the grace available through Christ. You have to have both of those things. Those of us who just fear God and don't recognize what a blessing we have in Christ live with the cowering mentality of the God who's wrathful. But if we just live in that grace and don't appreciate what we have to be afraid of, or what we would have to be afraid of, then we can't really know Jesus. Not what he wants us to know about him anyway. Not deeply the way he wants us. This is a story of grace. You know, last week we talked about fears, right? Things that promote and produce fear in our lives. And then what's God's advice to Joshua on how to reduce fear in our lives? This year we're going to talk about the one good fear. The fear of God. And it's ironic. If we have this fear, we're not really going to be afraid of anything else. You see how that works? We get afraid of lots of small worldly things, but when we're afraid of God and humble ourselves before Him, then all the worldly things, they pale in perspective. Is it possible to be really afraid of God and see Him for who He is and, and be so passionately appreciative of Christ and also then be afraid of where your next paycheck's going to come from? Those two things don't go well together. They're not easy to put side by side. The one pales in comparison to the other. But I think we're not good as a culture, broadly speaking, at having a fear for God. We don't have a true understanding of what that looks like. And so I'd like to talk about, I'd like Rahab to share her story on what it looked like for her to be so afraid of God's destruction and his wrath that she would do anything. And then the deliverance that came, you know, the scarlet cord. There's all sorts of links that have been drawn between the scarlet cord and Christ's blood and Rahab and, and Christ. And we'll see some of that as we read through it together. But... Um, I thought a great way to start would be just to ask us to bow for just one minute and pray. And each of us individually ask God to help us fear him more. Increase in our own minds and hearts our fear of him. The, the, the daunting aspect of a creator God. And what he looks at sin and how he feels. As well as a deepening appreciation for what Christ means. So would you do that with me? I'd like to take a minute for myself this morning and do that. And I thought that would be a great thing to do. Uh, please pray that God would increase your fear of him and your appreciation for Christ. And then we'll let Rahab speak. Creator God, we humble ourselves before you, we bow before you, we prostrate ourselves before you, knowing that you are all authority and that you are all power and that you are perfection and goodness. And we can't stand in your presence, we have to fall. But we thank you that you've given your son to stand next to us and to take us by the hand and to stand us up, to hold us up, to carry us forward. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, who you are to us. Instill in us a greater fear of God and a less of a fear of man. We thank you for Rahab and what you did in her life. And know if you can do this for her, you can do anything for anyone. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning of your greatness, of our need, and of your deliverance to all who call on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Alright, Joshua chapter 2. This is where we find the historical account of Rahab. I could kind of introduce it as the story of Rahab, but then that makes it seem like fiction. This is a historical account. This is included in the, uh, the Jewish literature preserved from this time. This is after Moses and the Ten Commandments. And this is Joshua about to head into the Promised Land. Eventually there will be kings. There will be King David. And that will be the next period of history. This is world history. This is actually the shaping of world history. Because if you think about how much Christ changed all of history, our calendar is being dated by him, the influence on the world, the spread of the gospel, this is the formation, the foundation for the shaping of the entire culture of the entire world through what Christ would do. So from creation and God to Christ to us to Judgment Day. This is a big part of that story. And yet this is just one woman. This is Rahab. This is a woman who lived in a city that was about to be destroyed. She was destined for destruction. She has such a beautiful story. Please read through it. Think about her. Think about what it would have been like if you were her. And then let's, let's let her speak. You know, what, what can she teach us that we can take in our stories and our histories today? So Joshua chapter 2. Let's just read it together. God bless the reading of your word. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Because, as an aside, Jericho was the first major city the Jews are going to encounter after they cross the Jordan River. So if we're all looking at like a map of the Middle East here, and you've got kind of the Sinai here, and you've got Egypt, the Jews go around, and the Jordan River is here. Right here is what will eventually be Jerusalem and their city, and then, you know, Mediterranean Sea. They've got to cross over the Jordan. This is the wilderness. They've been wandering for 40 years. They're about to cross over. And Jericho was the first big, great city over the Jordan. And so he wants to know what they're going to encounter. So he says, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search, to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And then the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Well, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left for in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. 
And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, where the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed, went into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills. They passed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land. They melt away in fear because of us. And then it continues on. Joshua rose and brought the people to the Jordan River. And we'll talk about the crossing of the Jordan. That's its own lesson to be learned. Remember last week we talked about fear and all the things we're afraid of? These spies go into the land and they were so afraid of taking over. When they get there, what do they find? Everybody's afraid of them. Like, who is the one to really fear? We'll talk about that in a second. These two spies, it was high season for the river at that time. They probably had to swim across the Jordan, had to walk days to get where they're going, then come back, hide, swim. Like, this is a life and death mission for them, for Jericho, for Israel. And this one woman houses them. This one woman believes them. This one woman says, I know your God is God. Save me too. This one woman defies the authorities around her. This one woman says, save me and my household. There's so much here. And I think if, Jer if Rahab were here today telling her story as a first-person account, she would say, it's all about grace. She said, I have no business being saved. I was a sinful person living the most sinful lifestyle in a sinful city in a sinful land. God devoted it to destruction. He was right to do so. But when I threw myself at his feet and said, save me too, he didn't care how bad it had been. He was ready to save me and make me one of his people. Like If she can be that bad and be saved, we can be that bad and be saved. And I think she would want us to know that. She'd want to stand here and say, you think that there are sins that are too big to forgive. You think that all the temptations that we fall to and all the things that we do wrong and things we regret and things we say we're going to do and then don't follow through on, you think that that's too big for God. She would say, well, look at my life. Look at where I lived. But she'd say, you know what? When I heard about God, my heart melted within me. And I recognized that all those sins, all those things going on in my life were going to destroy me. And I just didn't want that. And so I had no business asking for mercy, but I did. And guess what? God gave me mercy. But it wasn't because I earned it. It was just because He's willing 
to accept anyone into his family. But she so clearly could see the line between not saved and saved because it was a physical thing, about to be destroyed, and then she wasn't. Read that in chapter 6. We'll get there and we'll see how she was saved according to her promise, according to their promise. This is a story of grace, church. Let us never pass by God's grace as if it's like a secondary point. It's always only the only and most important point. And God's grace here is in full display. And we're going to see through these other things that she could tell us how good it was after. It was maybe for her as equally good after as it was bad before. And couldn't that be our story? That if we walk with the Lord wherever he calls us, that it could be so good next. It could be so good after. And it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon us going to the God who can show us mercy. So I think that's the first thing that Rahab would say. She'd say, this is my story of grace. The second thing I think she'd say is that it's all about the right things to be afraid of. Fearing the right things. She was more afraid of God than she was of her king. That's, that's the right way to go. That's the right hierarchy of authority. She said her heart melted in her. All the people's hearts melted within them when they heard the story. They were afraid of God and what he had done. Which is so ironic because the Jewish people were just kind of this outcast, nomadic people. like Nothing special. And yet God did things and the word traveled. And people were afraid. But she was more afraid of God. The kings that she mentioned, Sihon and Og, if you, you back up a little bit in the Bible and you read, they're on the other side in like the wilderness area before you cross the Jordan. Those were battles that got fought before entering the promised land. And those kings, when they heard what was coming... They heard about the Red Sea, and now the Israelites are here. They went out to battle. And it says that they were completely destroyed. Them, their families, everything. Not a single thing was left. So like this utter destruction of those people that came against God. So when those kings heard about God, their response was, I'll beat them. I'll fight them. And when that was tried a couple of times and utterly failed, now the next people are like, well, now what? You can't fight this God. And so she, not the king of her own city, who didn't bow and humble himself, not the other half, but her, the most unworthy person, said, I fear God more than I fear anything else. Which brings us to kind of the honest question when we think about things that we're afraid of. Are we more afraid of what people think about us or are we more afraid of God? And in our very human reality, I think if we're going to be honest, we more often think about what people will think. We more often think about who will be offended. We more often think about someone being angry with us. We think about that with fear of man. That's a very natural thing. It's almost like a, a normal thing. But it has to be put in its proper place. Our fear has to be of God and God alone. Do you remember that Jesus taught the fear of God? He said, don't just be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't touch your soul? Jesus said, be afraid of the one who could kill your body and also throw your soul into hell. Like that level of fear. Jesus didn't just come and like wipe away who God is in his power and his ferocity. He said, that is still who God is. And that is who he is today. But there's a scarlet cord. You can get out the window. 
you can climb out. There's an escape route, and that's Jesus. So Jesus never negated God as authority, as judgment. There is a judgment day. The whole Bible speaks to that, but we just get to escape. We get to escape. So we have to know who to fear. I just think it's so ironic that the Israelites were so afraid of people who are afraid of them. And that's us. We're so afraid of what's going to happen. Then we get there and God's got it like all cleared out and sorted and whatever. Like, oh, we didn't have to be as afraid as we were because we were just thinking with our short-term vision. And God knows that he's going before he paved the way. So we have grace. Rahab would remind us there's a, the, who to be afraid of. And this then leads us to the next thing. This is a story that Rahab would say teaches us Christian ethics. She lied to her king because it preserved the lives of God's people. It was right for her to lie to the messengers that came to her and lie to the king because she was saving God's people. She was obeying God. Now, that seems like a weird thing. Like, how do you lie and have it? Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? So would it have been right for her to turn over the spies? Would it have been right for her to defy God? In the pecking order, God comes first. And so anytime we're commanded to do something by an authority that's lower than him, it cannot trump his authority. And so if his people come to us, his spies come to us, his word comes to us and say, do this, when someone else says don't, we are to defy and rebel against that authority structure because it is setting itself up against God. And so Rahab lived through a very real circumstance. Like, what do I do here? I'm hiding people. I'm lying. I could be killed by the soldiers at my door. But I'm more afraid of God. All they can do is kill me. But God's greater even than that. He's in control of my eternal destiny, my eternal life or death. So let's put the fear where it belongs and fight as hard as we can subversively against those who will be destroyed ultimately. I will not go against God's call for the sake of man's commands. This is her ethical statement here. And I think it's borne out because, again, in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith she did these things. She lied by faith. And it's just such a weird thing to say. So wrap your minds around it a little bit. If it's too hard to think about, just sit on it for a little bit. We can talk about it later. Give me a call. It's not that this is the right thing to do in every situation, but in this situation, that was the right thing to do. And we need to be more afraid of God than we are of humans. This relates to our, our politics, right? We need to be more afraid of God's standards than our, our party's standards or than our country's standards or than any human standards, and it should fall in line. And we're called to be perfect citizens, like the ideal citizens, because we, we obey, we understand authority, we're hardworking, we pay our taxes, like we're called to be that as long as it does not conflict with our highest authority. And when it does, we're supposed to be subversive. We're supposed to rebel. We're supposed to fight for the highest authority, even if it costs us our lives. And so she took that stand. It's one we need to be willing to take as well. We talk about social issues. Again, are, are we more afraid of what people will think if we take a stance different than what the world says is right or okay, but we're trying to honor God in his higher stance or different stance? Well, then that will be, you know, come what may. Come what may. We take the stand because we're answering to a higher authority. And if it comes with a bunch of persecution, see Jesus. Footnote. That's what it came with for him. And that's okay. It hurts, but we've got the family, right? We've got the family of God and we're here for each other. And we take those painful situations for God's good. It glorifies him. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. So Rahab would stand here and she'd say, sometimes... 
You just have to stand up against the prevailing wisdom of the day. Sometimes you have to stand up and do something different. People are telling you not to do because you know that God's calling you to something else and you want to do it carefully because you don't want to be wrong about it. But if you're confident, then do anything at all costs to obey God. He's the one ultimately that we have to respond to. So she would talk to us about the story of grace. She would talk to us about fearing the right things. She would talk to us about ethics and how tricky that is, but how important it is. And then she'd move on and she'd say, you know, my story is a story of a covenant too. Right? Do you recognize that she made a covenant with the people of God here, with the nation of Israel, with God? The promise, I, I promise that I will give you my life, my life in exchange for yours. I promise I will keep my oath to become part of you. Please keep your oath to me. Isn't this basically the sinner's prayer? Jesus, I give you myself. Please save me and give me deliverance. She, she has a covenantal moment of salvation here. Rahab is saved, not just physically at Jericho time, but she's saved in a moment of faith. God is greater. I give you my life. It's in your hands. If you are not God, this will not work and I will die. That should be our covenant of faith as well. God, I put my life in your hands. You can do with me whatever you want. If you want to send me to Africa as a missionary, if you want to you know, make me the president of the United States, you want to make me high, you want to make me low, you want to make me well-loved, you want to, whatever. Like, it's not based on the results. It's based on the commitment. And she had to wait in faith then to see if it was actually going to come true. And that's how we live our lives too. We're waiting in faith based on God's promises. So the people of Israel gave her the promise. Keep your word to us. We will keep our word to you. It's a covenantal thing that's happening here. She's falling on her knees and she is promising her life to the people of God because of the fear of God. This is covenantal. This is how we're supposed to live our lives. We, we say pledges of allegiance to countries. We um, say vows at weddings, promises. The covenant that supersedes all of those things is our contract with the Lord, where we said, you have my body, soul, mind, spirit. Everything is yours. I give you my entire life. Do with it what you will. And then that's a contract. Right? That, that's a commitment you've made to the Lord, and He will fulfill His end of the deal. Our job is to stay submissive. Our job is to give ourselves over and put ourselves into His hand and then faithfully wait. Right? There's a lot of waiting in the faith game. She experienced it here. She sent them off. Would they ever come back? Would she be saved? That's the faith, and it's a covenantal faith. You notice also, I think Rahab would, would say that she's glad that the spies came to her because she was perfectly situated to give them entrance to the city. Right? This is what the, the New Testament calls a, a person of peace. That ideal person situated in a city where God's about to come in and do something miraculous. Where when you go and you make contact there, it's your base of operations. So here it's hostile territory. But isn't it hostile territory whenever someone comes to Christ? Say you live in an apartment building. And then, you know, unit 11B the person who lives there gets saved. Aren't they in Jericho in some way? Aren't they like living within the city walls, like around them? They're in foreign territory. And the way Jesus gives his advice to his disciples is, go to a place, and when you find a person who receives you, give them your peace. May my peace be upon them. You found a person of peace. And then from there, the word will spread. And if not, then like let your peace return to you and move on. The spies were led sovereignly, beautifully, to the perfect person who could give them entrance? Did they know that? Was that a coincidence? Did they show up? Did they just walk into the house in an inn? Most likely an inn. 
led by a prostitute. She could even be more of like the host of that home, uh, a prostitute or a, um, someone running a brothel, basically. But it's right on the city walls. Did they think that ahead? Like the city wall would be good access? Or was it just an inconspicuous place you can go and you can mingle with crowds and it's not in the city courts? Like what brought them there? God brought them there because she was the perfect person. She was the one who had been an outcast her entire life. How much love do you think she had for the society around her that treated her that way? She was ready for the good news, that there's something more, that you can be saved from this life. Do you think the people in her city were ready to like, let her free of the lifestyle that she had been born into and grown up? And no, she filled a need in their city. They wanted her there, and they're not going to let her loose. They're not going to unshackle her. But when God stepped in, he freed her which then freed her whole family. And she was perfectly situated. These, this kind of Rahab, Rahab tells you, you need to pray to be connected with the right person or the right people. Are you praying for your city? Are you praying for your apartment complex? Are you praying for your family? Pray for that person who's the connecting piece from you to them and from them to everyone. Because that's the advice that God gives. That's the example we see here. And I bet she would say, I'm so glad they came to me. I'm so glad I was the one. They showed up on my doorstep. I got to be that point of contact. And that's what we need to be praying for. If you're praying for people around you to come to Christ, pray for the person that you're supposed to have that one conversation with that then bears much, much fruit for the kingdom. It's a story of kingdom growth. Jesus says that the way God's gospel spreads is like a little seed. And a little part gets put here, and then it grows and it expands. Well, that's what happened with Rahab as well. And this leads us to maybe the last point that she might want to share with us this morning. It's the, the concept of her legacy. If the, spy, if the spies of God had never shown up on her doorstep, if she, if she had never rebelled and you know, fought against her king in order to be with God, if she had never made that covenant, if she had never been that point of connection, what would her legacy have been? Just another prostitute in, in a, an ancient city in the Middle East. But when God steps in and saves her, and I hope you noticed as you read it, it saved her father, her mother, her brothers, and all whom she owned, or who she possessed, how they say, which is why we think she might have been an innkeeper more than just a singular person. She had this building, it was on the wall, all those who belonged to her. Does not mention a husband. That's maybe, it goes without saying, right? She had no husband, but also doesn't mention any children. They're always mentioned. Children are always mentioned in these like family collectives. The father, the son, the husband, the brother, the children. It doesn't say that. So whether she had children and they're never mentioned, or whether she never had children, her legacy was, was primed to stop right there. And yet because of her faith, her whole family is saved. And get the legacy that God starts with her and moves forward. Some of you know this. You know where we're going with this part of the story. When she's taken into Israel, her and her father and mother and brothers and all who belong to her, she becomes a part of the family of God. She's saved. She's in God's kingdom. But then the Israelites keep moving on. She travels with them. She's a part of them. And eventually she settles down and she marries a man named Salmon. And they have a son. So there's a husband where there never was. And there's a son where there might not have been, and not just a child, but a son to carry on the family name. That son she named Boaz. 
And Boaz lives to a ripe old age, you know, he, he lives a happy, healthy, long life, and at some point in his life, he meets this other foreign woman, right? Do we know who she is? Ruth. And he marries Ruth, and they have a son, and that son has a son, and that son's name is Jesse. And Jesse has many sons, the youngest of whom he names David. And David becomes the king of Israel after being a shepherd, after defeating Goliath. And from David through Solomon down, we track the lineage of Jesus. So Rahab's legacy becomes the kings of Israel instead of the cast off of the world. Like it's such a beautiful switch. It's so powerful. I'm getting choked up thinking about it. It's just like this woman was not just saved. It's not a story of her not dying. It's a story of God making something so much bigger of her than she ever could have made of herself and having it be important. She became important instead of just an object to be used, a person who was debased by society. That's so grace. That's what grace is. So this legacy, there's a husband. There are children. There's a lineage. There are future people who are saved because of this covenant of faith. It wasn't just done with her. And I know if she was standing here today, she'd, she'd want you to know that it mattered, that it was worth it, that she's grateful for it, that it wasn't her own doing, that it was God's thing, and she was more afraid of him than anything else, and that was the right thing to be. Because look at how it paid off for him and for the kingdom and for others. And I think she would say, that's what we need to I don't think she would think that she's any different from anyone. She might even think she's lower than all of us. And we would say, no, like, you're more special than all of us. Which one of us get chapter 2 of Joshua written about us? Like, that's pretty important. Which one of us, our ancestors was King David and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson Jesus of Nazareth? But she'd say, no, you didn't even come from as far down as I was. Think of what God could do with you if you'll understand his grace, if you'll be more afraid of your eternal life than you are of people in this life, if you're willing to make that commitment and covenant with God, no matter what, I'm yours. If we're willing to be the person that connects God with all the people in our lives, that person of peace, if you're willing to pray that he'll give his blessings to your children and children's children, to a thousand generations of those that love him and serve him. So we want to be like Rahab, can we read her story and say, I want this to be my story? That's not the point. The point is what happened to her is what God does in people's lives. And we need that same exact thing for ourselves. So let's bring it all together here and say one more point about Christ. I mentioned it kind of hinting at it at the beginning. Jesus is the escape clause. There's a scarlet rope hanging out of Rahab's window. There was red blood on the doorposts of every Israelite's house to get out of Egypt and be saved there. There's a scarlet cord to be saved out of Jericho. And there's Jesus, his blood on that cross, which saves every person who will ever live from hell, from their sin, from the fair and just penalty of what we would deserve. Like that, that's what the story of grace is. That's what the gospel is. We need Jesus. Otherwise, it's just us with an open window in a city that's going down in flames. And although there are rises and falls in governments and world, eventually the world goes down in flames. That's the end of this world's story. So we don't want to be there 
burning down with it at the end. We want to have the cord out the window. We want to have Jesus who says, come with me, I'll save you. You're perfectly situated to climb right out. Let me save you. Let me save your family. Let me save your children. Let's have an eternal life together. And every single one of us needs that. So if we're not quite as afraid of God as we should be, let's learn from her that that's the great place to start. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And if we don't really understand that it's going to be Jesus who gets us to safety or no one and willing to commit everything to him, then we're not going to be saved. We're going to be like the people who lived around Rahab. We're just like hoping for the best. We're not hoping for the best. We've been offered the escape route, and it's up to each one of us to take it. So I encourage you, many of you I know already know the Lord. If anyone here doesn't, will you come and talk to me afterwards about what it looks like to get out that window and not go down with everything around us? Uh, Rahab would want you to hear that and not just think of her as you know, an ancient historical person, but someone who encountered God and who was saved by him. And she'd want that for each of us here this morning as well. So if that's where you're at, please come talk to me later. I'd love to pray with you. If you find yourself in conversations later on today and you realize someone's stuck in Jericho, <laughs> will you just at least explain the window? Explain the scarlet cord? Give them some sort of hope that this world actually can go down in flames. All the things you see that are bad in the world right now, yes, that's true. But it's not the end. And it's not the highest power. So we need to put our hope where it's not going to be lost or misplaced. So be the people that spread that good news and make sure that you know it yourself. And if not, find someone who does and just ask more about this Jesus and his, his promise. Let's say a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your grace. It is undeserved. And that's both ah, humbling and mortifying as it is ecstatic and rejoicing and uh, help us to keep both of those things in check. Help us not to be lost in our depression and our guilt over our sins, but help us to see things for what they are and to stand with you and to just be more and more blown away by your mercy to us, that you would love us, you would save us. Jesus, please continue to keep the, the window and the cord uh, open for us Keep that escape route from our lives, from this world, uh, an open option for us. We trust you. You are faithful. You will do this. Uh, please deliver each of us through to your kingdom in heaven and give us the privilege of bringing along all those around us. That the legacy might not just be for us as individuals, but that it might be a contagious, beautiful one for all the people we know. Please speak to us this morning, Father. And let us heed whatever it is that you're calling us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, as we begin to play music up here for the end of our service, I encourage you to take a moment to pray. Just think about, maybe look through Joshua chapter 2, take a moment. If God said something to you, don't miss this opportunity to talk to him about it.